Well, I've got the privilege of kicking off our new series through Titus this morning, which is one of Paul's letters found in the New Testament. So let me encourage you, if you've, you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that and turn to Titus 1. If you didn't bring one with you today, you'll notice there's one under the seat in front of you. You can grab one of those. And in, and in the Bibles that we provide, it's on page 998. Page 998. As you're turning there, I want you to entertain a question. Wouldn't you say that one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel is hypocrisy? What do you think? From those that, that you engage, that you share, that are not believers, they point to and they look at the, all the hypocrisy in the church. We could go back to Jesus times, right? Jesus spoke against the Pharisees. Oh, you hypocrites. I mean, hypocrisy has, has always been one of the great hindrances to the gospel. You look, and, and hypocrisy is is those who claim to believe one thing, yet deny those very beliefs through their actions. Well, here's what I want you to consider this morning. Have you ever considered the hypocrisy of atheism? Now, consider this illustration from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, great apologist, he used the analogy of a two-story house. And on the first story of this house is modern man, the atheist, where there is no God. That's the first story. On the second story of the house is where there is meaning and value and purpose. Now let's get this straight. If there is no God, life has no meaning, no value, no purpose. That is consistent with atheistic belief. But on the second story, which would be where believers would live, because we affirm that there is a God and there is meaning, value, and purpose. Now, here's what Schaefer says. Schaefer says, an atheist cannot live consistently and happily on the first floor. So what they do is they continue to make leaps of faith to the second floor to, to affirm value and meaning and purpose, yet they have no right to do that. Now, let me help clarify this for you. When an atheist makes a, makes a leap to the second floor, they are being inconsistent with their beliefs and they have no right to do so. Those are unwarranted. Let me give you a few ways. For instance, first of all, if God does not exist, there is no absolute right and wrong. If God does not exist, there is no absolute right and wrong. So let me just entertain this for a second. How does an atheist respond to the Holocaust? And what I'm talking about here is not just intellectually. I'm also wanting you to think through, how do they respond experientially? Because we're talking not just about believing certain things, but actually living certain things. So the Holocaust, was it perfectly okay for the Nazi soldiers to slaughter six million innocent Jews, a million of those being children? How can anyone live as if this were all right? I mean, everything in you cries out to say, these acts are wrong, absolutely really wrong. So you make a leap of faith to the second story and you affirm values. How does an atheist respond here? Their response experientially is, how do you live in a worldview where there's no God? When everything inside of you is crying out, that is absolutely wrong. So how do they live with it? They'll make a leap of faith to affirm value in meeting, but they do not have the right to do so. What about this? 
if there is no God, all evil acts of men, all of them go unpunished. If there's no God. Let's think about this. Hitler, unpunished. Stalin, the 10 to 20 million in the Ukraine. Pol Pot, as much as 2.5 million Cambodians, a third of the whole total population. All these evil acts, if there's no God, they go unpunished. What, what's crying out? What's going on on the inside? Is that okay? What about this? Not only do all of these acts go unpunished, all the acts and sacrifices of, sacrifices of good men go unrewarded. I want you to go somewhere with me for a second. Let's go to the Titanic. You're the Titanic. There's one lifeboat left. And there is you and a six-year-old kid standing beside you. What do you do? There's one lifeboat and there's one spot available. What does the world praise? The world would praise, let the six-year-old kid go, right? And in the whole world, even atheists would respond in praise and adoration for this great sacrificial effort. But let's be clear here. If there is no God, do you know what the stupidest thing you could do would be? To let the kid go. Right? If there is no God, there can be no reason to give up your life. Why sacrifice your life for the six-year-old kid? No, push the kid away and get on the lifeboat. William Lane Craig, in his book called Reasonable Faith, says this, one will probably never find an atheist who lives consistently with his system. For a universe without moral accountability and devoid of moral value is unimaginably terrible. So you're sitting here and you're asking, John, why this introduction today? What is the point? You see, atheists proclaim and profess one thing with their mouth, but experientially they deny those very, very beliefs with their life. I could give one more illustration. 9-11 happens. And what do we have across the TV screen? What do we need to do? Pray. That is a leap of faith. I mean, for, for the atheist to even come alongside and say, Let, let's pray. You, you, be consistent. If there's no God, who are you praying to? And there is no meaning and no value and purpose. What is the best you can do? Yet we see these inconsistencies all throughout life. Let me ask you a question. I want to turn from them to you. Are you living consistently with your beliefs? Does your doctrine correspond with your deeds? Your belief to your behavior? Your, do your works show evidence that you really know God? Or maybe does your life look absurd with God. See, today we're starting a series through Titus, and we've titled, we've titled it Good Deeds and Good Doctrine. And God's overarching message to us is that these two cannot be divorced. 
That was the concern with Titus. You cannot separate your doctrine and your deeds, your belief and your behavior. They go hand in hand. And so this is, this is where we're headed to. We, we want to be a church that weds these two together and that it would not be said of us that we believe one thing, but yet experientially practice a different thing and deny these very beliefs with our lives. So let's look at Titus 1 and we'll jump in and see what Paul is doing. Titus 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. If we're going to study any book of the Bible, and if you're going to properly understand any book of the Bible, a few things are essential. We've got to get the context. Man, who wrote it? Who's he writing it to? And why is, he, why is he writing the book? And so our primary goal as we look at the introduction today is to lay these out. Now you may be thinking, hey, that's going to be pretty boring. And this is a pretty easy answer. Hey, Paul wrote it and it says there was two Titus. So this could be a short sermon. But in between that, we see Paul really fleshing out the heart of the message of Titus. So what we're going to do is we are going to look at these introductory questions because they do help us in understanding and interpreting what's going on on in the book. So what do we see first of all? Who is the author? We see the very beginning in Titus 1 that Paul, it says Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the same Paul that we find about in Acts, who was a Pharisee, who was a persecutor of the church. When Stephen was martyred, he's the one standing there giving approval. But what we see is is on in, in Acts 8 and Acts 9 is Paul has an encounter with the risen Jesus and it transforms his life. Now, let's ask a question here for a second. Why does Paul introduce this letter in this way? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's he doing? Well, if we were to compare all the other 13 letters of Paul, we would find out that in only one other letter does he actually call himself a servant in the introduction, and that's in Romans. Now, servant of God, what what he is doing here is He's, he's, he's drawing us back into Old Testament Scripture because many of the Old Testament figures, main figures and spokesmen for God were called servant of God. Abraham was a servant of God. Moses was called a servant of God. David and Joshua were all called servants of God. And this is a, this is a key figure and a key language in the Old Testament. So it seems to be Paul is casting himself in this long line of biblical figures who are God's spokesman from the very beginning. So combined with that in this servant language, what's a servant? This is servant, bond servant, slave language, and a slave doesn't have any authority except what his master gives him. So from the beginning, Paul is saying, look, I am a servant of God. My authority is not derived from myself. It is derived from the one that I am a servant to. God gives me my my authority. So I'm speaking, I'm writing to you on the authority of God. And then he combines that with apostle of Jesus Christ. Servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ. We know that Paul, based on his encounter with Jesus in Acts, was called to be an apostle 
to the Gentiles. An apostle, simply one, is a sent one who has been sent on a mission. So these two terms combined is, is giving Paul authority. It's laying down, hey, here's who I am. I am an apostle. I am a servant. My authority is derived from God, from Jesus Christ. And I don't know, we, we usually don't think about these terms a lot, but even the, the words Jesus Christ, a servant, apostle of Jesus Christ, we usually use those words without even reflecting on them. Why, why does he combine those two? Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus, as we know, he was to be called Jesus because it means Savior. This word Christ is from the Old Testament to be Messiah or anointed one. And so through the Old Testament scriptures, it was prophesied. There would be a Messiah. There would be an anointed one. And Paul is affirming in this designation of Jesus, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. That's why these terms are usually back to back here. And there's a lot of theology packed in those. He was a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Second, who's the recipient? We jump down to verse four here. And it says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Titus is the recipient here. He's mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. Here's what we know about Titus. He was a convert from a non-Jewish family. So he was a Gentile, non-Jewish family. He first appears with Paul in Acts 15. And he's kind of Paul's example that you don't have to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus. He's Paul's example. So we're going to come back to this in a second. We're going to see how this is significant. But notice what he says about Titus. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Now, my true child. What Paul's talking about here, this is not his biological child. We know that as we learn about Titus. But in Paul's perspective, Titus was a child, his child in the faith. As we talk about discipleship, as we conceive of bringing people underneath you and equipping and teaching them in the faith, this was, this was, this was Paul's son. It was his child. He had invested and poured his life into him as he can talk about him with that language. But he says, my child my true child in a common faith. Common faith here. As we look on down in chapter 1, we find out that one of the main issues in Titus is that the presence of false teachers. And these false teachers seem to have some Jewish elements to their false teaching. They're going to be described as a part of the circumcision party. And it seems what Paul is doing in the introduction here, he's saying, hey, yeah, by the way, Titus, my child, the, the non-Jew, the Gentile who hasn't been circumcised, yeah, he's my true child, and he is a part of our common faith. And so Paul is even, in his introduction, he's hitting out later what we're going to see, some of the false teachings that would say you would have to be circumcised to be a follower of Christ. He's saying, oh, Titus is my example. And we already see that being unpacked in the introduction here. So who's the author? Paul's writing, the Apostle Paul, servant of God, to Titus. But hold up. Is this just like an individual letter to be read by Titus? I mean, if you were to sit down and write a letter and you had put down one person as the recipient, what are you expecting? The letter is to that one person. But in the context of Titus here, this is also a letter for the church. This wasn't just for Titus. This would have 
been understood that Titus would have been would have personally received the letter, but that it would have also been read to the church at Crete, which we're going to see about here in a second. How do we know that? How do we know that this isn't just a personal letter, that it's to be read to the church? Well, let me just show you a few examples here. In chapter 2, just look forward in chapter 2. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, Paul writes, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. And he continues on. What is, what is Paul telling them? He's telling them, these are how older men and older women to act in the church. The context here is of the church. It would be understood that he would be reading these and passing these along to those who were in the church. And then flip on to chapter 3. There are many I could show you. I just want to show you a few here. Chapter 3 and verse 15 the very ending, very end of the letter, it says, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with who? You all. Singular or plural? Plural. Grace be with you all. The context here, you know, in the South, we would have just said y'all. Grace be with y'all. But this... Paul's being proper here in his language. Um, it is assumed here that Titus would have shared this letter with the church. So one further question before we jump in um, and just laying out the context. Paul wrote it to Titus, and where was Titus? Look, Go back to chapter 1 and look in verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The assumption here is that at one time, Paul was in Crete with Titus, and he left Titus there with a specific purpose. Now, if we read through the book of Acts, do we find Crete mentioned anywhere? No. So where did and when did Paul go to Crete? The most common answer here is that it was after Acts. So Acts has 28 chapters. After Acts 28, um, after Paul's first imprisonment, that he would have made a trip down there um, and, and then sometime before his death, his last imprisonment. So this, it's usually dated sometime in the mid-60s um, is when Paul made this trip with Titus. But the, the picture here is consistent with Acts. So hang in there with me. I know we're getting through the intro, but man, God has a, a truth that he wants us to get at today. I just, I've got to lay this out for us. In Acts, what we see is Paul's missionary strategy. Paul goes to a town, people come to faith in Christ, and he goes to another town. But if we were to look at the first missionary journey, Acts 13, Acts 14, after Paul travels through all of these towns, do you know what he does before he goes back home? He stops back off at every single one of these towns on the way back. He could have taken the short road and just gone to the towns and gone home. No, he backtracks through every town. And it says in Acts 14 that he goes through every town, strengthening, encouraging the believers and appointing elders in every town so that the church would be established. The biblical model, the missionary strategy of Paul was not just to see believers come to faith in Christ, but he wanted to see, see churches planted, established with leaders growing and thriving. And that's the same here in Crete. He had gone to Crete. Why did he leave Titus there? What does it say in verse 5? This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint 
elders. Paul's conception of missionary work was not complete until the church had its own leaders so that it could lead and govern and guide itself. So this is really helping us get to, okay, why did Paul write now? Why is Paul writing the letter? Well, here's what's going on. As we look down in chapter 1, look at verse 10. What we're going to see is is that Paul was writing to encourage Titus, but also to help him in the face of false teaching. So in, in Titus 1 verse 10, it says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now listen to this, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Do you see the main issue going on here? He says they're liars. They've got this Jewish false teaching going on. But the main issue is this. They proclaim, I know God. But if you look at their lives, he says, they deny them by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the main issue. So he's writing to Titus to encourage him. Hey, appoint elders, strengthen the church, but primarily there's this false teaching that Paul was concerned that if this false teaching caught on in the church, that it could kill his missionary efforts that he had labored for and labored in vain. So let me just lay out here. I want to give you kind of the theme and a nutshell what's going on here. We got it on the screen here of this whole book. The theme of Titus is the inseparable link between faith and practice, belief and behavior, doctrine and deeds. This is the basis for its critique of false teaching as well as its instruction on Christian living and qualifications for church leaders. Paul is therefore providing a portrait of a healthy church. So you may be sitting here, hey, we finished the context. Why do I need to listen? Why is Titus relevant today? Here's why it's relevant. Redemption Hill Church, just like any church, is, is, is prone to false teaching. So we need Titus. It's going to be speaking to us in our teaching and making sure that our church is centered on sound doctrine. But also, you know what we're going to be tempted with? We're also going to be tempted, just like them, to believe certain things and not live them. We're going to be tempted to have a great statement of faith, but have lives that have no connection with our beliefs. And we want to, we want to make sure that our doctrine is wedded to our deeds. And then finally, just like with Titus, we want to make sure that we have leadership functioning in the way that a healthy church should be functioning. So in that sense, Titus is relevant to us today. So here's the point. This is what we're going to spend the rest of our time today. The point is this. In order for us to be a healthy church, we must know the gospel, live the gospel, and eagerly wait the consummation of the gospel. Where do I get this? We get this in verses 1 through three. So the rest of our time today, we've laid out the introduction. Who's writing? Who's he writing it to? What we're going to see in the rest of the introduction, Paul is giving and fleshing out the purpose for his apostleship. 
and this is it. The purpose of his apostleship was so that people would know the gospel, they would live the gospel, and they would eagerly wait the consummation of the gospel. So let's walk through this. The truth, the first truth I want you to get today is this. Know the gospel. Go back with me in Titus 1, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to flesh this out. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. This is the first truth right here. For the sake of. Why does he, what, what does that mean? Basically, that could be tra- translated to further the faith of, for the interest of. He's saying, the reason that I'm called an apostle is to further the faith of, for the interest of God's elect. That's what I'm about. The God's elect, their faith, and their knowledge of the truth. Now, what does he mean here when he says God's elect? Basically, he's referring to, it could also be saying, the chosen of God. This is a phrase seen throughout the New Testament to designate Christians and to emphasize God's role in, in salvation. So I've got a little bit from our statement of faith here um, on election. This is what it says in our statement of faith. Election is the gracious purpose of God, whereby he chooses some persons unto everlasting life, not because of forcing merit in them, but of his sheer mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. God's grace, therefore, excludes boasting and promotes humility. You know, we could take this doctrine and we could sit around and we can argue about a lot of points maybe that we don't have clarity on, but the truth is is it's it's in Scripture. The text does say God's elect. So what do we do? What's Paul doing there? What's his purpose? The function of election in Scripture is is never to promote boasting. The purpose here is always to promote humility and trust and grace upon God. Now, what we see Paul always do here is if he's going to highlight election, he's also going to highlight man's responsibility. So what's his purpose? His purpose for his apostleship is the sake of, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and of their knowledge of truth. It's even interesting he's combined these words. Faith. Who believes? You believe. God elects. God's responsibility and man's responsibility. Paul always holds these two in tension here. Nobody will ever come to faith and will will never be saved if they do not believe. There is always a call in the scriptures. Believe, trust, repent, follow. But we also see, man, God is at work by his spirit drawing people to himself. This is what Paul committed to. This was the driving force of his apostleship. He knew that God is at work saving people. And because of that, he wanted to attempt and do everything he could to lead people to a knowledge of the truth. So now let me ask you a question. If you had 60 seconds today, what would you say is the truth of the gospel? If you and I had a personal conversation, I pulled you aside and said, all right, you've got 60 seconds. What is the knowledge of the truth? What is the truth of the gospel? What would you say? What is the gospel? You're on spot. I want us to help, I want to help us think through this because when we see this language, knowledge of the truth here in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, this is basically a phrase equivalent with the gospel. He wanted them to know the gospel the truths of the gospel. If you are going to come to to believe and and have salvation in Christ, it's based on certain truths. We place our faith in Jesus, but it's on certain truths about Jesus, certain promises of Scripture. What is 
the gospel real quick, creation. In the beginning, God, the perfect God, created everything. Everything that you see, everything that exists, God. God is the creator, and he created you and I. He created us to know him, to love him, to worship him, to be in fellowship with him. You know what? He created everything good. No pain, no suffering, no sickness, no death. This is God. This is the world he created. But something went tragically wrong. The fall. Man rebelled. You and I, we chose to believe Satan's lie, that God was not good and did not have our best interest in mind. You know what? We all do it, not just Adam and Eve. We all have fallen for this lie. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't know what's best for you. You do. Be your own God. We all pursue that. And so you know what happened? When Adam and Eve sinned at the fall, sin spread like a virus, and it affects us. Oh, now everything's distorted. Sin, sickness, pain, and death. You all experience this. Can anything be done? Can anything be done? And you know what? Before we try to justify ourselves, we are far more sinful than we could ever dare imagine. Let me ask you this. As you think about the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is our offense against God any worse than the traffic violation you got last week or the parking ticket? You get the parking ticket from Cambridge, right? And you go and, and you pay it 25 bucks. Does, is that your view of God? Is, is our offense, you know, yeah, I paid my 25 bucks and I move on. Look, our offense against God is much greater than that. And it doesn't even compare. We are far more sinful than we could ever, ever dare imagine. Creation fall, the rescue. Here's the good news. Over the next centuries, after Adam and Eve, God prepared the way for the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, to come. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never disobeyed God. He obeyed Him perfectly. And He laid His life down to rescue His people by His death and His resurrection. Titus later on is going to say He was a ransom for us all. And He redeemed us. The story doesn't end there. Because I want you to think about this. What is the goal of the gospel? I mean, is the goal of the gospel just to bring people who do church together and, and, and do good for the world? I, mean, I want you to think about this. The goal of the gospel is to get you to God. That is the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is not that, that you would just have a great life and live in a great house and have kids that are, are ruly and obey and you've got a great marriage and a great job. That is not the ultimate goal of the gospel. The ultimate goal of the gospel is that you were created to know God, to live with God, to be in a relationship with God. And sin has broken that. But because of Christ, all of that is restored so that now you can be with God, your creator for eternity. That is the consummation of the gospel. That is restoration. That is what God is doing in this world right now. He is restoring everything that is broken. Whereas there was sin, there was death, there was pain. Now with the restoration, there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And it is because of Christ and Christ alone. Do you get it? Do you know the story? Let me ask you this. What's your part in this story? What's your story? This is the story of what God is doing. Where do you fit in this story? Here's your response. The gospel says this. It's not just knowledge of those four things. God, fall, creation, rescue, response. 
there's got to be a response. It's not just enough to know that God created the world great in creation and that there was a fall and that Jesus came. You must respond. If you do not respond, yes, God's elect, but you must have faith. You must respond. The call of the gospel is to repent and believe and embrace the good news found in Jesus Christ. And you know what? You can do that today. You're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what? I don't know how my story is going to end. I don't know if there's going to be sickness, pain, or death. And I'll say this, on the, in the gospel, if today you will respond, you can have the hope that everything will be restored. How do you respond? You admit your need. You ask him to forgive you and help you to live a godly life. You trust in Jesus alone to rescue you and you follow him as the king of your life. Admit, respond, believe, repent, turn, follow. Will you respond today? Who needs to respond today? Only you know. Paul committed his life so that people would know the truth. Do you know the truth? Have you responded to the truth? Good doctrine, good deeds. You know what? It does you no good today if you walk out and say, yeah, that's great, man. I know what the gospel is. If you do not respond to the truth today, all you've done is taken great doctrine and done nothing about it. But the purpose of Titus is that you would take this great news. You know what? Maybe you've even been coming for weeks and months to Redemption Hill and you've been contemplating the gospel until you take that and wed that with practice and respond. There is no life in Christ. Do it today. Respond to the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Second truth that we see from Titus is not only that we should know the gospel, we need to live the gospel. Go back with me in in Titus 1.1. Titus 1.1, Paul, servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul clarifies this knowledge of the truth, and he wants to make for certain that they know this. If you know certain things, you must live in accordance with them. It is knowledge of a truth that is in accordance with godliness. And in other words, the knowledge of the truth should produce godliness in you. Now, why does he mention this? Well, it makes sense. What did chapter 1, verse 16 say about the false teachers? It says this, they know God, they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. That's the false teachers. And Paul's saying, no, not the case with you. If you're going to profess to know God, then you better produce godliness with your life. You know what? This makes sense. I mean, let's just go back to the story, the gospel story for a second. Why were you made? Why were you created? You were created. We can go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He created male and female, and he created them in the image of God. Look, this is all about life meaning, value, and purpose. Why are you even here today? Why are you given breath to live and legs to walk? It is because you were created to make much of God. You weren't created to make much of yourself, even though that's how most people live. We want to make a name for ourselves, for our family, with our job, with our money, with our possessions. You were not created for that. You were created that you would exhaust your whole life to make much of God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That your life would be a reflection of this great God. I like to use the imagery of a telescope, not a magnifying glass. You're not called to be a magnifying glass. A magnifying glass does what? As a kid, you take it and you burn ants. No, that's not what I'm talking about. A magnifying glass makes small things look big. 
You're not a magnifying glass. You are not created to make a small God look really big. You get that? You're a telescope. What does a telescope do? A telescope helps to make visible things that are invisible to the naked eye. You guys follow me? So that we could look at the stars in my naked eye and I could see a few stars, but I pull a telescope out and you know what happens? Wow. It becomes clear. That's what our lives are to be. We're not to make God look big. Look, God is big. We just sing how beautiful he is. He is beautiful. He is awesome beyond description. So what am I to do? Has anybody seen God? No. But we are to be a picture of that. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Jesus was the picture of what God is like. And now, in being followers of Christ, our lives are to be a telescope that somebody could look through me and see the invisible God, that they could see what God is like. Look, this is what we are created for. This is what, out of the dust, he made us for, to make much of God. So when we come here and it says, the knowledge of the truth according to godliness, this shouldn't surprise us. But the problem is for many of us, we want, to, we want the benefits of eternal life, but we don't want the godliness. We want the assurance to know that if I die, I'm going to heaven, but we don't want to walk through the road of knowing that, man, I'm supposed to live a certain way. But the reality is, is this what you were made for? And let me tell you this. Satan's going to whisper this lie to you, and he's going to tell you that godliness equals unhappiness. Satan's going to tell you that if you want to live a godly life, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. But you know what? I could go after psalm after psalm after psalm, and I could show you this. The pathway of godliness leads to joy, satisfaction, life. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Psalm 16, God says, um, in, the, in, the pre- in his presence are pleasures forevermore. We could go on and on. Taste and see that the Lord is good. No good thing does God withhold from those whose walk is blameless. You see, not only were we made for this, this is the only thing that will truly satisfy your deepest longings in life. It is to know God and to live the gospel in godliness. So I just want to share a few things here with you. First of all is this. You are responsible for godliness. It's your responsibility. I love what Jerry Bridges says in The Pursuit of Godliness. Hey, you want to take a great book and pursue godliness? Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Godliness. We don't have it on our back table, but I can uh, help you get the resource. Come, come let me know. He says this about godliness. Um, he says, there is a price to godliness, and godliness is never on sale. It never comes cheaply or easily. The verb train which Paul deliberately chose. He's referring to 1 Timothy here, where Paul says, train yourself for godliness. The verb train, which Paul deliberately chose, implies persevering, painstaking, diligent effort. Does this describe your Christian life? Paul says here, the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance with godliness, is persevering, painstaking, diligent effort. Does that describe your pursuit of God. It is your responsibility to pursue it. The second encouragement I want to give to you this is it's not just your responsibility. God provides divine enablement. Look at this verse here in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Paul says, I mean, Peter says, in divine power, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What? His divine power has granted to us everything that we need 
for life and godliness. If you are a follower of Christ, you have it all. You are not lacking in any enablement. God is providing it. It's your responsibility, but God provides. And this is the picture of the Christian life. It's like flying a plane. On one wing is my responsibility. On the other wing is God's enablement, and we need both. But what's, so what, what do we struggle with? Some of us want to sit back and say, okay, I'm just going to sit back and pray. God, you make it happen. God, you produce holiness. You produce godliness. If you just sit and you pray and you pray, hey, that's great. But you need to get up off your seat and go pursue godliness. It's not just sitting back and praying that God would do something. It is taking upon your responsibility to go and pursue it. And we do it together. We see this all throughout Scripture. Paul says, work out your salvation as God works in you. It's a both and. So not only is it, is it not just sitting back, it's also, hey, you can't do this alone. Here's the promise you have. If you go pursue godliness, God is going to enable your pursuit of godliness and produce that in you. Third encouragement I want to give you based on this is godliness involves doing works. I want to show you just a few places here in Titus, just giving you a quick overview of the book. Flip down to Titus chapter 2, look at verse 11. Titus 2, 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's what the gospel does. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly. Look on down to verse 14. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for what? Zealous for good works. Jump over to chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in us, by his righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing every generation and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is the picture of godliness. If you're going to believe certain things, you're going to do certain things. So when you sit and daydream tonight, let's just do it here for a second. If I were to ask you, who was the most godly person you know? Who comes to mind? Is it a parent? Is it a Sunday school teacher, a community group leader, a pastor, a former pastor, a friend, a boss, a coworker? Who comes to mind? If you had to say, man, that person is godly, who comes to mind? Why would you say they're godly? What character traits do you think of? Put your finger on it. What is it? What makes them godly? Now let me ask you this. What would it take for somebody to say that of you? What would it take? What would it take for, for you to really just take up today and say, you know what? I haven't been persevering and pursuing with painstaking diligence to pursue godliness. What would it take? Now let me, let's just get this right. The goal in the pursuit of godliness is not so that everybody looks at this room and says, hey, you're godly, because that wouldn't be godly, right? <laughs> the purpose of godliness is to make much of him and not bring attention to yourself. And that's probably why you would point to somebody and say they're godly, because they're probably people that don't want you saying that about them. And they're not walking around promoting, hey, I'm godly, call me godly. They're probably exemplified by humility. 
and a genuine concern and compassion for people. But what would it take in your life? What would it take for you to walk away and say, man, I'm, I'm going to pursue with my life that I want to be godly, knowing that this is my greatest joy in life. The knowledge of the truth must be in accordance with godliness. And then finally, we'll wrap up with verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. Last truth I want you to get today is this. Not only should we know the gospel, we should live the gospel, we should eagerly wait for the consummation of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says this, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul's laying out his whole purpose for his apostleship. And he concludes, he says, look, I want you to know the truth, which is in accordance with godliness, and in the hope of eternal life. This is what it's all about. The goal of the gospel is to get us to God. In the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, it was man with God in perfect fellowship and unity. We were kicked out of the garden, and God since then has been working to restore and make the garden right. So when we go to Revelation and look at Revelation 21, what do we see? What we see is a new garden, but it's even better than the first. It's called a new heaven, a new earth. It's God's new creation, and that those who follow Christ will live with him for all of eternity. This is the hope of eternal life. Hey, let's be honest. Sickness is still present. Death is still present. And you know what? We will all face this. Pain, we will all face this. Everything is not as great as it will be. But what is going to prompt us to pursue godliness now? It's the great vision and grandeur of eternal life. It is that great hope. And Paul says something amazing here that I love. What does he say here? He says, God who never lies. You know what? People let us down every day of the week. Family, friends, co-workers, bosses, the president, whoever it is, they will let you down. But this is the assurance you can walk away and you can know this. God will never lie. Not only will he never lie, he cannot lie. It is impossible to lie. If God were to lie, he would cease to be God. So I'm going to, I was going to share a few verses here. I'm actually going to fly through those real quick and go to a quote by A.W. Tozer and then we'll wrap up. A.W. Tozer says this, upon God's faithfulness rest our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful Will his covenant stand and his promises be honored? Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. Look, we can do this. In the context of Crete, do you know how significant this is? We read earlier, and you know what Paul said about Crete? All Cretans are liars in verse 14 there. Chapter 1, sorry, verse 12. They're liars. 
And so Paul's saying this, hey, I know where you live. This is the slogan that characterizes you guys. You're liars. But let me tell you this. There's one rock you can put your hope and trust in, and it's in God. And he will never lie. Have you put your hope and promise in this rock? This sure foundation? This hope of eternal life? The hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, he promised before the ages began. And here's, here's the cool thing. This promise of eternal life is nothing new. This has been consistent. Paul's saying, hey, from the very beginning, even in eternity past, this was God's promise. At the proper time, it was manifested in his word through the whole Old Testament and out to now. This, this promise, this hope of restoration, this consummation, eternal life, God has been promising and manifesting through his word. And he says, and now, through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. I am confirming to this because you know what? We don't see eternal life. We're not there yet. And so it's based on hope. It's based on these promises. And Paul is proclaiming the gospel. There is hope in Christ. Follow him. Embrace him. Live to know and follow him. He's like, that's what I've been entrusted to. And this is who it is. It's God our Savior. He is mighty to save. So as we wrap up today, I know it's Father's Day, and this isn't necessarily a Father's Day sermon directed at fathers, but I do want everyone to listen up. Men, look at me. I want all men, from boys to grown-ups. Do you know what our world needs more than anything? Godly men. That's what we need. You know what Redemption Hill Church needs? You know what Medford needs? It needs to see men who are godly. So I'll just put this out before you. This is Paul's encouragement to Titus and to the church there. And I can hear him speaking directly to us. Hey, Redemption Hill men, what will you do? Will you pursue godliness with your life? Will you be known for godliness? Will you train yourself for godliness? This is where we're headed. Our wives need men who are godly. This church needs men who are godly. This city needs men who are godly. And, and we could make a specific application here. One specific application, if we're going to be godly, would be this. You know what? You shouldn't be a liar. God never lies. And if we're going to pursue godly lives, one of the best things that we can be known for is that we're going to keep our word. We're going to be men who say things, we live them, and we back it up. So men, I specifically challenge you today. Pursue godly.